Look at verse 26 of John 3 with me. Verse 26, this is John's disciples coming to him and they say, Rabbi, that man who was with you, the, the one on the other side of the Jordan, remember him? The one whom you even testified about. Well, he is baptizing. And everyone is going to him. The indignation, the envy in John's disciples' voice is so vivid you can almost smell it. They're gutted. They cannot even bring themselves to name Jesus. Do you see that? That man, the one on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. As far as they were concerned, Jesus uh, wasn't real, really returning the favor that John had given him. John had been very generous in talking about this Jesus. But now everyone is going to him. He was stealing John's thunder. He was invading John's patch, playing his game. John was known as the baptizer. Now Jesus' disciples are baptizing and everyone, everyone's going to him. They're furious. They rapidly see their little band of brothers decreasing, depleting in size. And they look over to Jesus and his entourage is just expanding by the day. This is the case that they bring against Jesus. They, as it were, put Jesus in the dock and they say to John, Look, isn't this tragic? They are offended by his growing influence. That's the case they bring against him. As I've thought about this this week, it struck me that this attitude of John's disciples is actually poignantly contemporary. It's very evident in just the newspapers over the last few weeks. This idea that the growing influence of Jesus is repulsive. It's vile. So on the 1st of February, children's charity Bernardo's encouraged more homosexual couples to foster and adopt babies. Their reasoning is to counter a social attitude that questions the parenting ability of homosexuals. Now, in the very same week, a Christian couple... Owen and Eunice Johns were rejected from fostering because of their belief in Jesus Christ. They refused to teach the acceptability of homosexuality to a potential foster child during the application process. Do you see the same attitude of John's disciples? The influence of those who believe in Jesus Christ is offensive so that actually we will restrict their ability to one of the fundamental human uh, things of bringing up children. Now let's, let's silence them. Let's re refuse that to them. Then on February the 8th, a Christian GP called Dr. Hans Christian Rab is sacked from his post on the Advisory Council for the Misuse of Drugs. The reason given because he was a Christian and he held to the Bible's teaching on the use of drugs and to homosexuality. So in this other case, it seems that being a Christian renders you unfit for being in the public square. You see that same attitude of John's disciples? A growing influence of Jesus would be a horrible, repulsive thing. 
It seems that for our broken Britain, a better Britain is found in it being liberated from the offensive, exclusive, extremist views of Christianity. Maybe even the one found in this passage that Jesus is above all. Just get rid of that. And maybe this society view is your view. Jesus is a spoil sport, and the idea of his influence in my life increasing is horrible. There's a new film out this week called Paul. Uh, I wouldn't recommend you go and see it, but it's about two sci-fi geeks who meet this extraterrestrial being. Now, the subplot of the movie is this alien is introduced by these sci-fi geeks to a Bible-believing Christian, and it destroys her faith. It's interesting, as the movie goes on, you get to the end, and the sci-fi geek that quite fancies this girl Asks or says to her, listen, I'm really sorry for destroying your faith in the Bible. She says, no, 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 don't worry. You have set me free, she says. You see, it's Jesus and believing in him is like a restrictive prison that oppresses us that we are going to break free from. And the rest of the movie sees this girl investigating this freedom with great excitement. Does this mean I can now take drugs and drink and swear and fornicate, she asks. And it seems as if this view of John's disciples is pretty contemporary. Life would be better. Good times would be had if Jesus was just got rid of. Let's silence him. Maybe that's you. Well, in verse 27, John the Baptist takes the stand in this case against Jesus as the first witness for the defense. And his testimony is actually a testimony to the contrary. John stands up as a witness to counter the conclusions of his disciples and actually to dispute the conclusions of our society. And in a phrase, here is what John says. He says, there is joy in me becoming less. See, the story goes, his disciples bring on the news. They say, John, there is this guy. Remember him? Well, now everyone is going to him. They expect John to join them in their resentment, in their fury against Jesus. What does John do? Well, actually, they couldn't be more wrong. He doesn't resent Jesus. This news is actually the very news he has been longing to hear. Look in verse 29, the end of. Far from being disgruntled, John now says, I have joy, complete joy, John says in this increasing influence of Jesus. And you notice, as John stands in the witness box before us, he is dressed in some wedding outfits. He comes dressed as a best man. You notice that? Now, when you are the best man at a wedding, your one role is the happiness of the groom. That is why you're there. So if he is happy, you are happy. If he is angry, you're in trouble. Uh, Your job as best man is... Uh, to make sure he is always content and happy and full of joy. Uh, You don't expect, if you are the best man, to have all the cameras flashing in your direction. You certainly don't expect, as best man, to leave at the end of the night with the bride. And so John's role as best man is the happiness of the bridegroom. And it's true, isn't it? When, 
when you are the best man for someone and you see the tears of joy run down his face as his bride enters down the aisle. And when you see the smile on his face when he holds his wife in the first dance. And when you see the excitement in his eye when he leaves for the honeymoon suite. Then man, his joy is contagious. His joy becomes your joy. And John says, hey, this is my joy. I am just the bridegroom. I have my full joy when all the cameras are flashing on Jesus, when he takes center stage. I am full of joy when everyone leaves me and everyone goes to him. He's not drudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent. But he is wholeheartedly embracing the role that God has given him. He says it in lots of different ways. He says... I can only receive what is given me from heaven. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not the bridegroom. I'm only the best man. That is my joy. And so he says in verse 31, He uh, he must become greater. I must become less. Sorry, verse 30. He must become greater. And I must become less. He says there is joy in me becoming less. Now to us that sounds wrong. (laughs) John, 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 you have got it wrong. (laughs) Uh, There is joy in me becoming more. That's our thought process, isn't it? When I increase in popularity, when I increase in influence, when I increase in power, when I have more money, then I will be more joyful. No, John says when I become less, that is when I have joy. And just so that we know, this is no false witness. Look at verse 24. A little hint as to John's future. This was before John was put in prison. Witnessing to this Jesus will land John behind bars. His joy, his delight in Jesus will take him even to the executioner's sword. He will decrease and decrease and decrease to the point of his head being separated from his body. For John, this is no fleeting pleasure. This is no dream. This is a joy to die for. This is a joy to put your head on the block for. John, 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 why? Why would you be happy to decrease? Why would you be happy to let someone else become more influential than you? Why would you allow someone else to have your world revolve around? What is that? I cannot conceive how me becoming less could bring me more joy, John. What is that? Well, actually, at this point, John the Baptist leaves the witness stand. And in verse 31, John, the writer of the gospel, the evangelist, stands and he starts to speak for the defense. His task is to show us why on earth would John the Baptist happily decrease that Jesus may increase. And by inference, hopefully it will answer our question, why would it actually be a good thing for Jesus to increase in influence in our society? Why would it be a good thing for Jesus to have more sway in your life. That's why John stands now. And his short testimony is this. There is life in him becoming 
more. The joy lies in the surpassing greatness of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know what it is in life to step back and allow someone greater than us to take the reins. We all do it. Men do it grudgingly, but they still do it. Think of the man who is driving in his car, uh, splutter, 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 smoke, 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 the car breaks down. What does every man do at that point? He gets out of his car, he opens the bonnet, and he looks inside. He, he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> he has never seen an engine before, but he touched things, he burns himself. Uh, he's trying to work out what he's doing. But when Mr. RAC arrives, even that proud man will happily step back and allow the greater mechanic, the true mechanic, to take control. Some of you may have done it this morning uh, or this afternoon when you had Sunday lunch. You get home, your mom or your wife says, can you have the illustrious task of chopping and peeling the tatties? So you get in, and sometimes we do this deliberately. We don't do a very good job of it. So that what happens, mom says, let me do it. And she comes and peel, 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 chop, chop, chop. And with eminent efficiency, supersedes us. John's point is bound up in the superior greatness of the person of Jesus. Why is John happy to step back? Why on earth would he happily decrease? Why would he let someone else take the reins? It is because of the superior greatness of Jesus Christ. In verses 31 to 35, it is just phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase of top trumps. Jesus every time every time. We're going to see it in four areas. Let's just run through these quickly. Where he is from, what he says, who he is, and what he has. Firstly then, where he's from. Look at verse 31. We read, the one, that is Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. The one, or those, so that is John and all of us, who are from the earth, belong to the earth, and speak from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all all. Jesus is infinitely distinct, measurably different from all of us because of his heavenly origin. We're restrained by earthly limitations, our finite experience, and ultimately our length of days. But Jesus, by his surpassingly great origin, trumps us. Just as us from the east coast of Scotland would consider ourselves as a different league from those from the west coast of Scotland. So too, the superior greatness of Jesus is seen in where he comes from. Although he shares our humanity for a short time, although he camps out with us for a little while, ultimately he is the one who has come from eternity and to eternity he will return. Question, is that true of anybody else? Secondly, what he says. Verse 32. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. And then verse 34. For the one who comes from God, the one whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. Where someone is from determines how they speak, doesn't it? Think back to the east-west of Scotland thing. Accents are very illuminating. So too, where Jesus has come from determines what he says. So he is able to speak of things of heaven, things of God with authority because he has seen them and he has heard them. He is therefore a trustworthy witness. 
Not only that, though, beyond that, we are told that actually he speaks the very words of God. Did you get that? When you hear the voice of Jesus, you are hearing the very voice of God. Question, is that true of anybody else? Thirdly, who he is. Look at verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Now here we enter into the fringes of the distinctively Christian understanding of who God is. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In these verses we see God the Son, Jesus, limitlessly united to God the Spirit, and internally enjoying the love of God the Father. The Jesus we see in the pages of the Bible is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a leader or a martyr from human history. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, is the God of eternity. That is why when you hear him speak, you hear God speak. That is why knowing God is within your grasp, because in Jesus he has made him known. Question, is that true of anybody else? Fourthly, what he has. Verse 35 again. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Get that word. Everything. Everything. The Father has given everything to the Son so that when you see him, you see the full revelation of God. So that when you see him, when you see the revelation of God in him, it is absolute, all-embracing, and all-sufficient. So that you can come to Jesus as you would come to God. Question, is that true of anybody else? No. No one. It is certainly not true of me or you, so God cannot be known by looking inside of us. It is certainly not true of Joseph Smith or even the Jesus of the Book of Mormon, so salvation cannot be found in Mormonism. It is certainly not true of Muhammad, so God cannot be known through Islam. Do you see the superior greatness of Jesus? Here is the joy then for John. Here's why John will happily step back. Because the Jesus who steps in is the God of all eternity who has both the might and the right to give eternal life. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There is life in him becoming greater. Now at this point, This court case takes a dramatic twist. So far, you have sat comfortably in the prosecutor's chair. And Jesus has been on trial. But in John's gospel, there are lots of these little trial scenes where although Jesus starts off in the dock, there is a sudden 180 degree turn and you find yourself on trial. 
You are not passive as you read this gospel. You cannot be passive. And because of the greatness of this Jesus, because of the authority of this Jesus, because of the godness of this Jesus, eternity hangs on your verdict. Eternity is hanging on your verdict. Now here is one side of that eternity. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The superiority of Jesus is seen in that he has the authority to give life. In John 3, if you were here last week, or if we were to read the start of the chapter, we would find out that we are sinners who deserve to perish. Deserve to be condemned. But it is the love of God that he sent his one and only son. A love even for this rebellious world that he would send his son to perish, to die at the hands of men. But as he hung on that cross to bear the wrath of God against sin, the greatness of Jesus is seen and he allows me to step back as he steps onto my cross And he suffers immense sorrow that he might give to me joy. And he suffers the agony and goes through death that he might gift to me life, eternal life. Question, could that have been done by anyone else? No, only the one sent by God with the authority of God who was God. Why would I rejoice in the superior greatness of Jesus? Because he gives me life through death. Why is John full of joy even to the executioner's chair? Because Jesus gives him life. There is life in him becoming greater. But, like a coin, eternity has two sides, doesn't it? Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But, Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. And this side of eternity is actually the side of the majority, isn't it? Most people don't rejoice in the greatness of Jesus. That's true today. It was true in John 3. It says no one accepted his testimony. But if this is you, even though you're in the majority, I plead with you, see the seriousness of your position. Look with me at verse 32. If the man who has accepted Jesus' testimony has certified that God is truthful, the opposite is also true. Those who reject the testimony of Jesus make God out to be a liar. Look at the seriousness of verse 36. I think we'd expect some symmetry in this verse. If I was writing it, I would have said, whoever was... Whoever believes in the Son have eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son will not have eternal life. But he says whoever believes and the other side is whoever rejects. The word is actually disobeys. To think little of Jesus is not a a neutral verdict. It is disobedience. It is active rebellion against the God who has everything 
in his hands. To think little of Jesus is active rebellion. Do not think, please, that your verdict on Jesus is of little significance. It is no small matter. Remember, eternity hangs on this verdict. There is no neutral ground. There is no such thing as agnosticism. And there is no fence to sit on between these two eternities. To do nothing is to rebel. Let me take you to the words of a 17th century writer. John Owen said this. He who deliberately refuses to come to Christ when called by his word secretly shows himself to be a hater of God. Do not think that it does not really matter whether you come to Christ or not or that you can put off coming to Christ till later. Your present refusal of Christ is a high act of enmity against God as any of which your nature is capable Because your sin is active rebellion against God, it deserves God's active punishment. That is hell. Because your sin is active rebellion and it is an offense against an eternal God, that active punishment will be an eternal punishment. Eternal hell. You think that life with less of Jesus will be a life to the full? a life full of joy, but actually your disobedience will forego the life that is truly life. Hell will be full of people who thought too much of themselves and too little of Jesus Christ. And you see, this chapter teaches both the love of God and the wrath of God. Did you notice that as we read through? The Father loves the Son but he is also a God of wrath. We can't sweep that under the carpet. We shan't be ashamed by that. If we lose God's wrath, then he becomes a God who isn't bothered by wickedness. If we lose God's wrath, then actually his love doesn't become anything. It's when I realize I am a rebellious sinner who deserves eternal hell that God's love to me in Jesus Christ shines all the brighter. And so John, the writer of this gospel, writes this to you tonight as you stand in the dock. And he pleads with you, believe. Believe that you might have life, that you might have joy. He writes so that you would see the greatness of your offense against him, but then see the greatness of Jesus Christ and his cross. You may ask, well, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to find salvation through this Jesus? Well, let's keep using the imagery we've been using. To believe in Jesus is firstly to think less of yourself. Less of yourself because of your sin. Less of yourself because you are a wretched rebel against God. To despair of yourself. And to believe is, secondly, is to make much of Jesus, to think everything of him, to rely on him completely for his wrath-satisfying death and his life-giving resurrection. To believe is like John, to think less of yourself and in that to find the joy of Jesus becoming greater and finding life in him. 
heaven will be full of people who made much of Christ and made little of themselves. Let's allow John to have the final word on these two eternities. He writes back from verse 16 of the same chapter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray together.